what are your short-term hopes and what are your long-term hopes? What are your short-term hopes and what are your long-term hopes? Maybe potentially for your short-term hopes, it might just simply be having more self-control. Self-control not to gain as much weight this holiday season than you did last year. Or maybe self-control, not to stay up as late watching movies endlessly, playing video games, or scrolling mindlessly on your phone for too long. Or maybe it's something more serious and urgent. Maybe a short-term hope for you is recovering from a lingering illness, receiving a good report from the doctor in the coming weeks. And maybe it's the restoration of a broken and fragile friendship that you're hoping for. Maybe an estranged member in your family that you're hoping that could be reconciled one day, maybe sooner than later. Friends, we all have short-term hopes, things that we are wishing would come to fruition immediately. We want it right now. Circumstances, moments, events, relationships. I mean, maybe for you, just fill in the blank. If only fill in the blank would change immediately. If only fill in the blank, things would go exactly as I planned, then I would be set. I would be content. I would be happy. I would be a happy camper. Life would be good. Everyone around me would be perfectly content and happy and hopeful too. At least we imagined they would. But we also have long-term hopes. Long-term hopes are those things we typically hope come to pass, but we're not really in a hurry about right now. We tell ourselves we've got patience. We can wait. We can persevere. Is it seeing a child come to saving faith in Christ? Is that you're hoping in? Are you hoping to get married one day? Stay faithful to your marriage vows. Are you hoping to have a few best friends you hope to stay friends with for the rest of your life? Is it seeing this church grow? Spiritually, numerically? Is it seeing a new church building built on Chad Colley Boulevard one day? Brothers and sisters, is your long-term hope and my long-term hope Fighting the good fight, finishing the race, and keeping the faith. Beloved, are our biggest hopes at the end of the day truly set on God? Do you and I have a hope in God that far surpasses just the here and now short hopes Do you and I have an unwavering hope that rises above any and all perplexing circumstances in our life? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 579. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read. Take that Bible right there in the pew back or the chair back as a gift from us. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This morning we reach the final section in Paul's last letter to Timothy. 
which will logically serve as our last sermon in this sermon series. The Lord keeps me as pastor here for 30 years. Maybe I'll preach 2 Timothy again to some of your children and grandchildren. But for you guys, this is it. And friends, it's been a rich book, hasn't it? We've stared at the themes of discipling and leaving a legacy, faithfulness to Christ while suffering for Christ, teaching and preaching the word of God clearly, faithfully, and boldly, having endurance in the faith, experiencing the power of God in weakness. Friends, the themes go on and on. They've been jumping off the pages week after week for the last several months. Friends, I hope in the coming months and in the coming years uh, that you would even re-listen to these sermons. Even in the coming months, even reread 2 Timothy again with fresh eyes and watch how much God grows in each one of us many of the themes we've been studying together. Last week, we saw where Paul uttered his last words of how he lived his life for Christ because of how Christ poured out his life for him. Uh, We learned this one big idea last week that the finished work of Jesus Christ provides what we need to finish our work for him and, and therefore to keep the faith to the end. And then really two points we looked at in verses six to eight. Number one, pour out your life for Jesus because he is worth it. And point number two, finish your life strong for Jesus because he is always faithful and just. This morning, we're going to look together at verses 9 to 22. And as we do so, we'll find ourselves paying attention to personal life lessons and church ministry lessons that we need to have stay with us for the rest of our lives. And my prayer is that as we stare at Paul's unwavering hope in the midst of his painful and perplexing circumstances, we too likewise will cling to that same hope that Paul did. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 9. Please follow with me. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila. In the household of Anesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Lydus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. 
This is God's word. In this final section of Paul's last letters, last letter rather, several contextual observations are worth taking note of. So if you're ever reading a passage like this in your quiet time and you're tempted to skip over and go, well, I don't really know what to do with this, I hope to model with you this morning not to do that. I want you to take a look at the book and stare at details that give texture to draw application. The first textual observation I want us to note is this. Paul mentions 17 names of individuals or groups of people in this one passage. 17. These names are the mixture of names of Christians Paul was close friends with. There's the mentioning of an entire household that showed him love, encouragement, and hospitality, the household of Anesiphorus. There are ministry partners he traveled with and served with for varying lengths of time. In fact, two of the names in this passage, Mark and Luke, you know who they are, right? They are the human authors of the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. And of course, Luke penned the book of Acts. So you have Luke who really recorded this in-depth investigation of the life of Jesus and his gospel, and then all the ministry travels of the Apostle Paul and the book of Acts. This list also includes what appears to be a persecutor and opponent of Paul's ministry. Paul even name drops him specifically, which means, friends, there is a time and a place to call out by name people who are opposing the gospel and dividing Christ church. For him, this was a man named Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander the naysayer, who was a coppersmith. Uh, Who is this guy? Well, whether he was the Alexander Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, that he puts out of the church through excommunication, or he's the Alexander mentioned in Acts 19, when they're in Ephesus and a riot breaks out. We're we're not quite sure, Uh, the fact that he is a coppersmith or a metal worker could mean that he made little pagan images, pagan gods. And so one of the reasons why Alexander was hotly opposed to Paul is that Paul's ministry was threatening his livelihood. People were smashing their idols, burning their books, and all their other pagan magic practices, and giving their life to Jesus. And so he was hot. He was furious. Paul was raining on his parade. And this man, well, he he wanted Paul done. He wanted Paul out of town. And then also we see in verse 17 that Paul mentions this non-Jewish ethnic identity, which we would fall into categories of Gentiles. Verse 17, in which we know the Gentiles were one of Paul's primary audience to take the gospel to. For example, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, it's what Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. That's the first observation. Second textual observation. Paul mentions seven names of specific cities and regions that spanned over hundreds of miles. For example, he mentions there, if you want to look down with me, in verse 10, Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. Paul wrote two letters to the church there, which are 1st and 2nd 
Thessalonians. Then again, in verse 10, he mentions Galatia, which is in modern-day western Turkey. He mentions Dalmatia, verse 10, which is a Roman province on the east coast of the Adriatic Sea, ranging from present-day Croatia and Albania. Then in verse 12, he mentions Ephesus, which is located on the southwest shores of modern-day Turkey. We're familiar with Ephesus from its prominence in Scripture, from the letter to the Ephesians, or the book of Acts, or even the book of Revelation. We also see there in verse 13, Troas, which was a port city on the coast of modern-day western Turkey. It was the location, if you recall, of Paul's Macedonian vision, where God would literally send Paul to plant the first church in modern-day Europe. He gave him that vision there in Troas. Verse 20, he mentions Corinth, which is located on the southern central aspect of Greece. Paul had written several letters to the church there. We have 1st and 2nd Corinthians in our New Testament canon. We also have Miletus in verse 20, which was about 50 miles south of Ephesus. And then, of course, Rome. Rome is not explicitly mentioned, but it's implied. How do we know that? Well, that's where Paul's writing from. So when he tells Timothy to come to see me, where is me? Paul is in Rome. We know it in 2 Timothy 1, verse 17. So that's the second textual observation. We got people, we got places. Third textual observation. Paul gives us very vivid clues as to his circumstances. Very vivid pressures, timing, and pain he's found himself in. Remember, friends, he's a prisoner in Rome. He writes this not from a holiday inn, but from a Roman prison cell. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, 16 and 17. Chapter 2, verse 9. However, Paul's words, and really church history, would confirm and record for this as well, that this grim lot in prison would be very different from his previous arrest. This time, Paul knows he won't get out. Paul will never be a free man in any earthly sense ever again. He knows his execution by the emperor Nero is very imminent. And we know from church history that's exactly what happened. They tried Paul unjustly, just like they did our Lord. They took him outside the city and beheaded him. Friends, this man counted the cost in following Jesus and he died as a martyr by the sword. Friends, Paul is found in the number of the martyrs who will have a special place in God's kingdom on the last day. Paul is found like all the martyrs throughout church history who've died for Christ which it says in Revelation 12, 11, and they conquered him, Satan and his demons, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Friends, what makes a martyr heroic is not that they died for a good cause. Many people do that around the world. What makes a martyr heroic is that they loved not their lives, but they loved Jesus more, even unto death. That's heroic. And that's exactly what we heard him insinuate. Paul knew was coming. 
He wasn't taken off by that. Remember last week's sermon? Look down in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. As you were here last week, that word departure means to throw off the ropes like a ship leaving the dock, to be released out into the open sea. Paul Paul viewed his life not as a dread to be avoided or a death to be avoided at all times, but he avoided death as a delightful departure to be with Christ, which is far better. And friends, every Christian who has ever died knows this experientially already. Every Christian who has closed their eyes in this life and opened them immediately in the next will say with a resounding joy, this is far better. And friends, that is the same true for us. If we are in Christ, it would be far better to depart from here to be with him. We also know another contextual clue of the timing of this letter, that winter is approaching in the near future. Look at verse 21. Paul told Timothy in verse 21, do your best to come before winter. For Timothy to be able to join Paul before winter, he would need to leave early enough with plenty of time to execute the plan. That's because the Mediterranean seaports and the Adriatic Sea as well were both closed in the winter months. It was too dangerous to cross. Uh, From November to March, it was, no, no, you can't come. Uh, Because of the long distance for Timothy to travel from Ephesus to Troas, verse 13 seems to imply, all the way to Rome. So get out your Bible mat sometime and trace Ephesus, Troas to Rome and having seaports blocked off for four months. You know how long it would have taken Timothy to get from Ephesus to Rome? A minimum of four to six months. A minimum of four to six months. That's why you hear Paul in his voice, come to see me soon. Come to see me before winter. Paul knows his time is short and Timothy has a distance to travel. This is an urgent and serious and heart-moving address. Lastly, what's very obvious from this section is Paul is finishing his race for Christ. But there are others in his life who didn't finish their race well for Christ. In fact, some along the way failed, and they failed big time. They failed Paul in his greatest time of need. You see, friends, not only was Paul anticipating his imminent martyrdom, he was experiencing both internal and external trials for a number of reasons. He was being pressed between a rock and a hard place, pressures and pain from every conceivable angle. Again, remember, he's in prison. He is suffering in a personal and unique way. He's chained up, locked up, quarantined from society, all alone from all most of his friends. He's stripped of his comforts, stripped of his freedoms, and left in a dingy, dark cell to die. And beloved, he was put in this predicament not because he deserved it. He was put in this situation not justly, but unjustly. You see, friends, Paul had the favor of God upon his life, 
and upon his ministry, but that did not mean he had favor with everyone else around him. Brothers and sisters, I want to press into that because one of the heresies that have crept into many Baptist churches today is that if you become a Christian, it will be an advantage to your social life, an advantage to your career, an advantage for political gain. Friends, we are not living in those days anymore if they ever existed. If we believe and walk with the Jesus of the Bible, in many contexts, it will not be an advantage to have more comfort and ease and acceptance in our life. It will actually be the total opposite. You can have the favor of God on your life and the disfavor and displeasure of others around you. Being a Christian does not mean life will go exactly the way you and I plan. Instead of getting the job you want, you could lose a job because of your faith. Instead of being invited to the party, you could lose all your old friends because you are a passionate follower of Christ. Instead of being the most popular, the well-liked somebody in your family, the golden child with the golden spoon, or in your school, or in the workplace. Friends, for being a Christian, you could be slandered, talked poorly about, and rejected because you stand on God's Word. Friends, beware of churches and preachers that preach the benefits of knowing Christ without the cost of following Christ. Beware of churches and preachers who preach the benefits of knowing Christ without the cost of following Christ. Friends, many people, you may even know them yourself. They might even be grown children for you. Have grown up and left the church. And friends, I want to tell you one reason of many why they did that. One reason of many is because some preacher in some church told them if you walk down an aisle and repeat these words in a prayer, all will be well with your soul. Friends, that type of evangelism damns many people to hell. We are not saved by a formula. We are not saved by how we walk forward at the end of a meeting. We're saved as every sinner has been saved since the very beginning, repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. And friends, if we preach the benefits of knowing Jesus, ask Jesus into your heart, believe that God raised him from the dead, confess that you're a sinner, and we don't always and also say, and in following this glorious Christ, you are called to carry your cross. If we don't teach that, that is a truncated and misleading gospel. In this life, it is suffering, and there it's glory. Oh, friends, may we at CCBC preach both. We preach the benefits of believing Christ, but we also teach the cost of following Christ. You see, for Paul, he had a wide preaching ministry. He established churches, raised up preachers, made disciples. Praise be to God, he was turning the world upside down for Jesus. But as we know from Scripture in our own lives, friends, Paul got pushback, and so will we. If they hated Christ, will they not also hate those who follow him? Friends, the Christian life does not come 
come without pushback. It does not come without setbacks, headaches, and heartaches. Why was it so fierce for Paul? I mean, really, why did he end up in a prison cell? Why have scores of Christians around the world ended up in prison cells? Losing their life, losing their freedoms, being kicked out of their countries, being disowned by their families. Why? What's the big deal? If people don't believe in this invisible God and this Jesus who was born of a virgin, why are people so angry? You ever ask that? You ever ask why when you're at the dinner table, somebody stops the conversation and says, hey, we can talk about anything except religion and politics. That's just smoke and mirrors. That's because their hearts hate God. And when God's word is going forth, God's word reveals the idols of our hearts. Friends, Paul ended up in prison because his preaching was dethroning the idols in people's hearts. People were giving their life to Christ, bowing their knee to King Jesus, not Caesar. King Jesus, not Nero. King Jesus, not even their own families. Friends, that's why every Lord's Day, one of the things we should be praying for is that God would reveal the idols of our hearts. By nature, we are idol factories. And preaching is that heaven-sent sledgehammer. Preaching is that heaven-sent wrecking ball to smash the very things that are keeping us from putting our hope only in Jesus. Friends, that's why the word of God, when it goes out, it always cuts and wounds before it cleans and heals. What did the writer of Hebrews says? Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Friends, why is it that sometimes the people who are attacked the most have the biggest target on their back are often those who are the most clear and faithful and bold in teaching God's word? Douglas Kelly once said this, wherever there is a faithful ministry in today's culture, it is very likely that those who begin feeling the authority of God coming through the preaching of the word will first of all start attacking the minister. People feel more free than ever to give to the fullest reign of their dislike and their criticisms of the leadership. And sooner or later, friends, you too and myself will face pushback. We will face major pushback, and it can come in forms and from people you would least expect. It can even cause division and disruption in your own home. What did Jesus teach? Matthew 10, 34 to 38, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Paul counted the cost, and it cost him his life. 
I also want you to notice some of the internal pressures he faced. This is where you see the humanness of Paul, just like us. Paul has been deserted. He's been deeply let down, brought to the depths of disappointment and hurt. And it didn't come just simply from an enemy he expected. You know, as one preacher said, lost people are going to act like lost people. Why are you acting like they're not? Sometimes the deepest wounds come from those we didn't expect them to come from. Wounds from a friend, or you thought they were your friend. Wounds from a family member. Paul had one of those. Demas. Look at verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That word deserted, which is also used in verse 16, means to abandon. Jump ship. Get out of Dodge. Forsake. Leave you in the dust. It's the same word Jesus cried out in agony to his father at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken or deserted me? Christ was bearing the penalty of God's wrath in the place of wayward, rebellious sinners like us. Friends, you and I will never be forsaken to the greatest degree because Christ has already done that for us. Friends, don't be misled about Demas here. Well, he was just a fringe person, you know, he was just kind of on the peripheral, just kind of flaked off. Paul would not put his name in inspired scripture and given this description if he was a nobody. Friends, Demas had served with Paul in ministry for years. He would have been in Paul's top 25 men to call up, email, text, and recommend to Christians to learn from. He was a disciple-making disciple. He would have been in our membership directory. He would have preached on Sunday morning, Sunday night. He would have led various things in the ministry. He's mentioned again in Philemon 124, Colossians 4, 14. Friends, we have every reason to believe that up until this point in Paul's life, Demas was a faithful Christian. He appeared that way. Looks can be deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. Somewhere along the way, Perhaps without anyone noticing it, Demas' heart for Jesus began to grow cold. The fiery embers of his love for Christ, the scriptures, the church, they became very dim and dull. His heart instead became captivated by the pleasures and pursuits of this fallen world. Friends, his heart began to be captivated by selfishness. I'm going to get mine. Selfishness is always a slippery slope that leads to destructive places. We were not created to live for ourselves. We were created to live for God, to love him, and to love others. When we become the God of our life, it always leads to bad consequences. You see, Demas loved himself, and he loved the world, and it shifted 
all the priorities around in his life. When we get our priorities out of whack, it messes up all the relationships in our life. He deserted Paul. He gave up the ministry. He gave up his friendship. He walked out on him and left him high and dry. Friends, have you ever been deserted by someone you loved? Have you ever been deserted by someone you trusted? That you shared intimate, private things with? And then they used it against you. Maybe it was a spouse who walked out on you for another man or another woman. Maybe it was a friend that acted shady and distant. And then all of a sudden turned their backs on you. Maybe it was a mom or dad who just walked out on the family, walked out on you, and left you and all your family members all alone. Friends, if you've experienced anything like that before, Paul knows what that's like. And more importantly, Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus had all 12 of his disciples. Listen, friends, three Years of intimate, rarely interrupted communion with the Son of the living God in human flesh. Three intimate, deeply invested, blood, sweat, and tears years with 12 men who he opened up his heart, gave him heaven's theology, gave him his life, miracles, love, care, friendship, all of it. Three years ended in the upper room, when shortly thereafter, 11 of them denied him, deserted him, and ran away and left him all alone. Peter, who was the most self-confident, I will never deny you, I will never desert you, I will never be a Demas. Peter, of all people, denied his Lord three times, and many of those from a little servant girl challenging him. And then there was Judas. Judas basically, for practical purposes, sold his soul to the devil for money, greed, little street cred and popularity with people in his community, literally betrayed our Lord for money selfishness. I'm going to get mine. And had his Lord crucified. Friends, the deepest wounds in our life may very well come from a family member, a church member, or a close friend we've known in intimate ways. That's why it hurts so much. When you open your heart up to anyone, you open it up to be vulnerable. And the deepest wounds will come from people you least expected. Friends, that means the only perfect friend of sinners. The only perfect friend that will never wound you in sinful ways 
is the one who came to die for you, for your sin. That's only Jesus. Jesus is the only friend who will never walk out on you. Jesus is the only friend who won't put a knife in your back and turn it. Jesus is the only friend who knows the worst about you and still loves you. That's good news, isn't it? We don't have to have any stained glass masquerade with Jesus. He can see right through it. He knows the worst, the most shameful, the most perverted, the most faithless, the most debaucherous things about you and me and still loves us. That's why it's preposterous. It is idolatry to put your family above Jesus, to put a boyfriend above Jesus, a girlfriend above Jesus, a pastor above Jesus, a Bible study leader above Jesus, your friends, your church members, anyone put above Jesus is preposterous because only Jesus and Jesus alone will never leave you or forsake you. He left heaven And he came to earth. He was forsaken, suspended for a moment, bearing the penalty we deserve, standing in the gap of the sin problem we have created. And he died in our place. He gave up his spirit and he cried out. The most dark, the most painful cry to a father he only knew love with. And he did that for us. And he died with everyone deserting him. He died with many not even believing in him. Until three days later, God raised him from the dead. And those deep wounds that we carry around in our life today, they were nailed to a cross to the God-man whose wounds can make us clean. His wounds can heal us, even the deepest wounds. You might say, friends, how how does what Christ did for us, how does that speak to our wounds? Charles Wesley once said, he came to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end by his life, he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, and friend. Friends, Jesus Christ is the only one. Not a pill bottle. Not binge watching TV. Not the best vacation you ever had. Jesus is the only one that can heal those deep wounds because his wounds paid our ransom. Friends, did Demas apostatize? Did he he walk away from the faith? Well, we're technically not told either way. He could have left Paul for all sorts of reasons to go to Thessalonica. It could have been cheaper living. It could have been better weather. It could have been better shopping. Maybe he just wanted an easier ministry. Thessalonica is not as hot and intense in church drama as it was in Rome. Chances are Demas could have very well been that statistic that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. 
and it does not bear lasting fruit. Friends, I'm not sure what was the end verdict for Demas, but God knows. And what is really sad about Demas, he's never talked about ever in the New Testament again. That's literally the last thing we hear about him. Having loved the world, he deserted Paul. Friends, I wonder if there's any Demases among us. Are there any Demases in the membership of this congregation? Friends, if it were not for the grace of God restraining us, we all would be Demas. Friends, we should be asking the Lord all the time, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. The 19th century Anglican theologian once said this, Lord, without you I can do nothing, with you I can do all. Help me by your grace that I fall not. Help me by your strength to resist mightily the very beginnings of evil before it takes hold of me. Help me to cast myself at once at your sacred feet and lie still there until storm be overpassed. And if I lose sight of you, bring me back quickly and grant me to love you better. Amen. Friends, the scriptures are clear. We can be drifting away from Christ and not even know it. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Friends, listen carefully to God's word and obey what you hear. Listen carefully to God's word and obey what you hear. If we don't pay attention, we could drift away. Thirdly, I want you to notice Demas was not the only one who turned his back on Paul. You thought one wound to the heart would be bad enough. Paul also was abandoned and left hung out to dry by all his closest friends that should have been there for him. It occurred at a previous time, Paul says, some years ago, but it was a memory Paul never forgot. He was on trial, being falsely accused, lied about, treated poorly, but no one spoke up for him. No one stood up for him. No one publicly advocated for him. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Oh, friends, do we not see Paul applying the gospel of grace to his deepest wounds? May it not be charged against them. May it not be held in judgment forever over them. He learned to do this, friends, by looking to Jesus as his hope as his perfect friend who will never leave nor forsake. And he looked to Jesus because Jesus promises he can heal those deep wounds. What did Jesus pray at the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul would have been included in that prayer by our Lord. The father answered the son's prayer and took that anti-Christian terrorist, Saul of Tarsus, and converted him into the Jesus-loving Apostle Paul we know today. Friends, Paul was doing this very same thing for his friends who had failed him in his time of need. Did you hear that? What's our natural reaction when we get wounded and hurt and betrayed? Pay them back, Lord. Wish bad things to happen to them, Lord. Let them have it, Lord. Pray down those impeccatory prayers in the Psalms, Lord. And what does Paul do instead? He knows God is just, 
but he also prays for mercy. You know why Paul prays for mercy, even those who wounded him? Because Paul didn't forget he needed the same mercy from this God. Friends, their failure, Paul's friend's failure, did not crush Paul's faith. He was perplexed, but not driven to despair. Those who fail us, friends, should not crush our faith either. John Flevel once said, the soul is the life of the body. Faith is the life of the soul. Christ is the life of faith. Friends, it did not crush Paul's faith because his faith wasn't ultimately in how good his friends were. His faith was in how good Jesus is for him. And beloved, that same reality must be ours too. We will not understand what it means to show undeserved mercy to others until we have first been humbled by our great need for mercy too. That's why Jesus told us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Oh, John Owen says a hard word here. Our forgiving of others will not procure forgiveness for ourselves, but our not forgiving others proves that we ourselves are not forgiven. Unresolved bitterness, friends, will destroy your life. Unresolved bitterness, it will destroy your life. You will distrust people you should trust. And you will trust people you should distrust. Bitterness gets our heart backwards. And it gets inverted on us. We become the judge, not God. We become the savior, not God. Friends, the only way we can uproot that bitterness is you're going to have to release that and accept God's mercy for your own hypocrisy and my own hypocrisy so that bitterness dies or it will kill us. Friends, unresolved bitterness will destroy your life. Unrepented of bitterness will condemn you eternally on the day of judgment. The greatest gift we can hold in our hands, the greatest gift we can extend from our hearts is the gift of forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. Forgiven sinners will forgive others of their sin. Those who are forgiven much will love much. Forgiveness graciously extended is the aroma of forgiveness that has first been received. The last observation we'll make about Paul's painful and perplexing circumstances, some friends were simply no longer in his life because of God's mysterious providence. Now, Paul wasn't totally bereft of his friends. I mean, Luke's probably going, hey, yo, 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 I'm in here with you. I mean, Luke's probably actually pinning the thing because Paul's so bruised and beat up, he can't do it. Verse 11 Luke alone is with me. We love Luke. Good old Luke. But others, they went to other places for reasons we're just simply not told. Look at verse 10. Christens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. You ever ask someone, hey, where's your, your sister? I don't know. Last time I heard they went to Dalmatia. 
you know, where's Don? I don't know. He's in uh, Galatia this week. Why? I don't know. Just, I don't know. I just noticed where he went. Could have been for ministry. Could have been for personal reasons. We just don't know. And then others are explicitly mentioned as having left Paul, listen, to go do good work elsewhere. Look at verse 12. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Most likely, Tychicus would replace Timothy, relieve him of his duties in Ephesus so that Timothy could come see him. Tychicus is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament as having probably delivered the letter to the Ephesians and Colossians for Paul. Tychicus is relieving Timothy so Timothy can come. And then some friends and ministry partners, they just stay where they're at. They got nothing against you. Just like they did with Paul. And sometimes they don't even have a choice. Things like weather, distance, money, obligation, or even sickness can prevent people from being with you. Look at verses 19 and 20. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. We know that Onesiphorus is mentioned in chapter 1. Prisca and Aquila was that married couple that walked alongside Paul in different parts of the journey. Erastus remained at Corinth. Erastus was the city treasurer. In Rome, we know from Romans 16, 23, he just remained at Corinth, just stayed put. And then he says, I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Uh, Trophimus would travel with him. Acts chapter 20, he's one of the Asians that uh, were with him. Apparently, he got too sick to keep going the race. Sometimes sickness separates us from the people we love. Friends, as we conclude 2 Timothy, what are some important lessons for us personally to take away? Three personal life lessons, three church ministry lessons. Three personal, three church-related. Number one, personal life lesson number one, we all need faithful friends who truly love Jesus and sincerely love us. We all need faithful friends who truly love Jesus and sincerely love us. Friends, being a Lone Ranger Christian is spiritual suicide. We all need friends. The pastor, church member, older man, older woman, younger man, younger woman, we all need friends. But we need the right kind of friends. Faithful friends who love Jesus and only want what's best for us. Who was it that Paul wanted to see in his final hour? Look there in verse 9. He says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. He also wanted to see old Mark. Mark Reichert speaks up. Look at verse 11. Hey, get Mark. He's like, hey, as you're coming, hey, pick up Mark. Timothy's like, what? Are you crazy? No, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. But who's Mark? Well, he's also known as John Mark in the New Testament. Acts 12, Acts 13, Acts 15. He joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but for whatever reason, Mark had bailed on Paul. He just kind of deuced out on the trip. Maybe things got hot, things got difficult. Maybe, we don't know. He just peaced out on them, just ghosted them. Then in Acts 15, Barnabas, his relative, comes up to Paul and says, hey, we're ready to go. And here's what we're ready to do on the second missionary journey. And Paul goes, "Uh we're going forward, but he ain't coming. John Mark bailed us. He's like a C minus on my report card for people I want to take on a mission trip. No, 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 no. I remember what he did back on that first missionary trip. There's a sharp divide between Barnabas and Paul all over John Mark. 
And friends, we never see them do ministry together ever again. In fact, we don't hear any instance of Paul speaking positively or even negatively, though. It just seems to be silence. They agreed to disagree and move on. And yet, at the very end of Paul's life, he tells Timothy, his beloved child in the faith, hey, as you're coming, bring Mark. He's useful to me. Friends, sometimes division happens for sinful reasons, and sometimes division happens that we have to resign to the sovereign mystery of God. And yet, in God's amazing plan, he was working on Mark's heart. He was working on Paul's heart. And at just the right time, they were able to join back up again when Paul needed him most. Friends, you need to trust, I need to trust that when God separates us from family members, friends, co-workers, whatever, and it does seem kind of like, ah, agree to disagree, we can't work together in this same kind of path. It's not for sinful reasons, but personal preferences, philosophy of ministry convictions, fill in the blank, just like Barnabas and Paul did. We need to trust that God's working in everyone's heart. He's sanctifying your heart and my heart and in their hearts. Friends, we should have the attitude of when people leave our church. If they didn't leave for in bad ways, of course, you know, unrepentant sin, we should tell those who leave, you know, the door swings both ways. You know, the door swings both ways. And just for clarity of conscience, I have shared that several times since this church started. When people have left this church, I tell them on the way out, the door swings both ways. Friends, we should not make it hard for people to come back if they're genuinely sincere and desire to see this ministry prosper. Pray against bitterness in your hearts. Pray that God is doing a work in everyone's hearts involved. Number two, we will all face disappointment and hurt, but we cannot let it destroy us. We will all face disappointment and hope, but we cannot let it destroy us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. One of the mottos of the Navy SEALs is the only easy day was yesterday. Friends, I'm not saying you have to be a Navy SEAL to join this church. I'm not looking to put BUDS training in the membership class process. But I do think a little more mental toughness would do many of us good. It's too soft. Life's hard. Yeah, it's been hard ever since the fall. And so I think we should have a little more mental toughness about ourselves, a little more grit, a little more resolve. We're going to live in this fallen world, and we need to preach truth to us while we're in it. Number three, no matter what you face in life, the Lord is always with you. No matter what you face in life, the Lord is always with you. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Friends, how do we know the Lord will be with us? He's omnipresent. He's always faithful. And he can empower us even in our weakest moments. Paul had been abandoned, but he was not totally abandoned. The Lord stood by him. The Lord powerfully used him as he stayed put. 
Friends, the Christian life can be full of paradoxes, can it? We ask ourselves, how was your week? I'm thankful. I'm perplexed. I'm encouraged. Ah, discouraged. All in the same week. Sounds pretty like normal Christianity to me. Adverse circumstances do not mean God has abandoned us. No matter what you face in life, the Lord is always with you. Robert Murray McShane once said, a dark hour makes Jesus bright. Three ministry lessons to pay attention to as we close. Ministry lesson number one, the church is a living organism, not a static organization. The church is a living organism, not a static organization. And this, this last section, guys, it feels like a coach in the middle of a huddle, right? Here's Paul in prison. You would think he's thinking about all the things in his life. Regrets and memories and nostalgia. You know what Paul's doing in his last hours? He's getting to work. He's busy. He's strategizing. He's saying, hey, you go here, you go here. Hey, Mark, Timothy, come here. I got some work for you guys. Would Mark replace Demas? It's possible. Did Tychicus replace Timothy? Most likely. God's working in all these people's hearts. Paul's life, Timothy's life, Tychicus' life, Titus's life, all of them. Friends, Paul might be dying, but God's people are still pressing forward. What an example, isn't it? To come to the end of your life and you're thinking about the Great Commission even beyond your life. Paul also had some instructions. He wanted to fill his mind with some good things. Look at verse 13. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. These could have been writings, early writings about Jesus, early writings by Paul. Nonetheless, Paul basically says this, bring me a jacket, it's cold up in here, a poncho, a warm cloak, and I need some books, some scrolls, I got to get to work. I imagine one of those scrolls was Paul writing, Timothy and Mark, I love you guys, I'm going to miss you. Here's what you got to do next. Thinking about the next generation. God was moving people around to do his will one person at a time. Number two, church ministry is messy because sin and suffering will exist until Jesus comes back. One of the things I love being around older saints is that older saints have seen a lot. The longer you walk this road with Jesus, the more you've seen certain things happen in cycles in your life. Even earlier this week, one brother told me, Blake, nothing much surprises me anymore. I've seen this kind of stuff played out multiple times in my life. King Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Younger believers, surround yourself with older saints who can give long-term perspective. Older believers, surround yourself with younger believers who can keep you fresh and energized to keep living for Jesus. Members of CCBC, do you want to be used of God? Look what Mark did. He was faithful, available, and teachable. The acronym is F-A-T. He was a F-A-T Christian, but I'm not going to say it anyway. He was there. He was available and useful. Lastly, number three, we'll conclude the glory of God must be the number one reason our church exists or else we will compromise, quit, or despair. 
The glory of God must be the number one reason our church exists, or else we will compromise, quit, or despair. Brothers and sisters, what are your short-term hopes in life? What are your long-term hopes? Friends, he had, Paul had short-term hopes. Bring Timothy, bring Mark, bring the parchments, bring me a blanket. It's cold up in here. Verse 21, hey, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, we got one of those. They're thinking about Timothy. They wanted to send their love to Timothy. But Paul also had long-term hopes. And friends, it's in that hope where I want to land the plane. Because it's in this hope that will help us persevere and keep the faith to the end. What was Paul's long-term hope? Look at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Where did Paul put his hope in when everything and everyone around him was falling apart? The glory of God. Christ will bring me safely. He will rescue me and he will bring me to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Friends, God does not promise absolute safety from physical, emotional, social, friendship, harm, or family wounds. No, the whole thing is littered with pain. But he does promise to keep our faith safe with him so that we'll be preserved to the end. Friends, what should be the number one motivation for persevering in the Christian life? The glory of God. Leaving a Christ-honoring legacy, the glory of God. Fighting against sin, the glory of God. Standing for the truth, the glory of God. Contending for the faith, the glory of God. Discipling and pastoring, the glory of God. Loving difficult people, the glory of God. Planting a new church, the glory of God. Serving in the church, the glory of God. How I join a church, how I leave a church. Protecting unity in the church, praying for the church. Why do we do any of it? The glory of God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Not us, but him. Jesus Christ be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, members of CCBC, the Lord be with your spirit. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your glory would truly be the number one pursuit and ambition of why we do what we do. And Father, we pray that whatever wounds we have faced in our life, whether it's children or adults, long time ago or recent, or even still to come, Father, we pray our hope would not be put in people that will disappoint us because we will disappoint others too. Lord, put our hope on Jesus Christ and Christ forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen.